Today on The Topping Show, Jordan Peterson responds to his tyrannical re-education training. Anheuser Bush Yankee tweet is not a doodle, but more of a dud. An article finds that Google promotes Democratic candidates while hiding Republican ones. Albert Anthony has a fake accent and is a, perhaps a Carlos conservative. Super Mario voice actor retires after 25 years. Rudy Giuliani surrenders to Fulton County. GOP House Committee opens investigation into Fannie Willis. James O'Keefe is now being investigated. First day arrest of the lawyers, now they're going for journalist. Andy No wins $300,000 from his Antifa attackers. Biden admin cuts archery funding from a school. The UAW wants the same benefits that led to the GM Chrysler bankruptcy in 2009, or they'll strike. Twitter maker is entertaining a sale. Better.com goes public. BlackBerry has a takeover offer. Amazon and Disney discuss ESPN streaming partnerships. And Dollar Store, they have to start locking up their merchandise because the theft is so rampant. All of that and much more on The Topping Show. Thank you everyone for taking the time to tune in today. Today's episode of The Topping Show is sponsored by Topping Technologies. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Gotta say he's quite handsome and brilliant. He's me, that's the joke. If you're an IT leader or business owner, need a little assistance, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, for the month of August, we're giving away a free flamethrower with every August purchase. Click the site for details. Now, going over to the business part of the podcast, you have a the Twinkie maker entertaining a sale. Now, the parent behind the infamous Twinkie is known as the Hostess Brands Company, which was subsequently formed back in 2013. Well, they had to actually do that because they declared bankruptcy a little bit earlier because people stopped to buy as many Twinkies because they, they just last forever, apparently, and people didn't buy enough of them. So they actually reformed in 2013 by a couple of companies, including a venture by the name of Apollo Capital Management and D Metropolis and Company and they were acquired the assets from Old HP, the company formerly known as Interstate Bakeries and Hostess Brands, Inc. And they make pretty much the most iconic brands that you could think of. Yeah, Twinkie, Ding Dong, Snowballs, Zingers, pretty much all the sugary confectioneries we all grew up with and knew and loved. Now, Hostess has actually become an acquisition target after it raised prices on some of their products in order to boost revenue. And it's also fueling investor concerns over their prospects it looks like prior to the news of the sale, the company was exploring sales. Shares were down about 1% year-to-date versus the 29% rise in NASDAQ Composite Index. Now, it looks like a couple interesting competitors have apparently started to hover over some offers, including General Mills, Mondelez International, PepsiCo, and HersheyCo, also known as Hershey's. And they all expressed interest that they might be interested in acquiring the intellectual property as well as the company in and of itself. In terms of my three cents, which one would probably make the most sense Probably Mondelez are one of the largest confectionery or candy companies out there internationally. And Pepsi, most pretty much everything they make involves sugar and salt. Pretty much everything in the salty snack style is made by PepsiCo because they own Frito-Lay. And Pepsi, of course, in and of itself, they make most of the sugary drinks you could think of. So you can probably get some aggregate, eh, pretty good maybe economies of scale in terms of little discounts and buying extra sugar and just increase their portfolio. And a lot of these companies, that's... One of the easiest way to expand is not just inventing your own products, but going out and buying other intellectual property that everyone already knows and loves. Now, it looks like Hostess has actually hired an investment bank, and specifically Morgan Stanley, for advice in handling deal negotiation. Now, no agreement is certain, and Hostess may decide against the deal, but it looks like Hostess shares rose 26% on the news to $27.89 last Friday after trading in New York giving the company a market value of close to $4 billion, which is quite a lot of Twinkies. 
Uh, it looks like Hostess also has a debt net cash of about $900 million at the end of June. So not that great. But it'll be interesting to see, do, as consumers shift their preferences and taste, and people are buying less and less of that, it'll be interesting to see what's the value of the actual brand and intellectual property. It's already gone belly up once. Do they just need to scale back the production or just really scale back how much they're making? At what point is it not profitable to make those brands that people used to love and for decades? So I'll be interested to see are those brands still around tomorrow because it looks like as of today, they, they might be for sale, but in what capacity, maybe we might just have to scale it back to make it more profitable. It'll be interesting to see, but time should tell. Other interesting business news, you have better.com going public. Now they went public last Thursday and it's a little back after a little bit uh, more than two years after they struck a deal to go public via the special purchase acquisition company. Now specifically, specifically kind of what they're known for. I mean, they're known for the CEO of Vishal Gargs. He's 2021 mass firing where he fired 900 employees on a Zoom call. And not so not, not speaking with them individually on an, even just sending a generic email. He had a Zoom conference call with 900 people and he just said, oh yeah, uh, everyone's call, uh, you're getting laid off. So they got a lot of negative press. Now it looks like the merger with its SPAC SPAC Aurora Acquisition Corp was first agreed in May 2021 and it's been revised five times in the interim, leading to a myriad of delays. And the company also reported combined losses of 1.2 billion in 2021. And in 2022, they laid off 91% of their employees in the past 18 months. So things are not looking great for this, more, I believe it's a, for a better.com. And I can't help but wonder, geez, going public, that, going public is a great way to raise cash, of course, because you're getting everyone to invest in your company. It'll be interesting to see what they're going to do with all that cash investment and is there anything they could do to turn things around? Because as of right now, it looks like they're in a pretty, pretty tough situation. But I would say time shall tell. Now, other interesting businesses, you have BlackBerry given a takeover offer. Now, they used to be one of the most iconic companies on the planet. They invented, well, they used to be known as Research in Motion, the most, perhaps the most infamous Canadian technology company on the planet, founded by Mike Lazarius decades ago. And their breakthrough technology in the beginning was a pager and then they had the email technology or you know email in the palm of your hand and the blackberry product was so successful they renamed the company after the specific product and they quite literally made a dent in the universe they changed the world unfortunately they were not too quick to adapt to the iphone that came out of seemingly nowhere in the industry interestingly enough when the iphone first came out the ceo of blackberry mike said two very detrimental things that were kind of a nail in the coffin of the philosophy of the company. He said, one, no one would ever pay more than $500 for a cell phone. And he also said, two, no one would ever want a cell phone with only one button. Which, yeah, nowadays pretty much every cell phone in the United States is over $1,000. And they usually have one button, it's usually just the power button. So uh, needless to say, they were, they, they were wrong quite a bit. Now it looks like the fir private equity firm by the name of Veritas made a takeover offer for BlackBerry and the U.S. listed shares of BlackBerry rose about 17% at that news. Now, granted, they said BlackBerry said in May that it would conduct a review of strategic alternatives, which could include a possible separation of one or more of its businesses. Throughout the years, they've divested many parts of business, including the core, which used to be cell phones. That's really what everyone was known for. But they actually acquired Silence, so I want to say about three years ago, which used to be one of the best cybersecurity companies for endpoint security and cell phone security. And now they've been bolstering cybersecurity in vehicles, which is a growing segment as more and more vehicles nowadays are pretty much computers on wheels. 
that'll be a vector of attack from a security concern. And that would seem to be a good bet in terms of growing technology segments. Now, they also said they were in May, they said they will continue, uh, sorry, BlackBerry said it will continue with the previously announced sale of the patents related to the mobile devices to Maleki Innovations, limited um, up for $900 million. So they're selling their cell phone stuff off completely. A couple of years back, they even sold the intellectual or the, by the branding to. So it was a licensing agreement where people thought BlackBerry was coming out with new phones. It was HTC. It was another company making them entirely, but they were just paying a licensing fee to use the name BlackBerry because they know that name is pretty strong. There's a lot of, a lot of fans who still remember it. It was one of the most secure devices out there at the time. But unfortunately, the cell phones that came out in recent times, they were nothing more than a licensing agreement with another company. And this announcement of the sale of the remaining patents they have on the cell phone technology just further solidifies the idea that they're going to be, their whole vision with the new CEO, well, I say new, he's been CEO for quite some time, but they want to be a software company and a services company, and they're leaning full into cybersecurity, which is a good bet. Cybersecurity is one of the fastest growing segments in technology. And given the ever-increasing threats from cybersecurity adversaries across the globe, not just between, not just from individual ha uh, unethical hackers, but you also have nation states, you have organized crime. The cybersecurity threats are only increasing exponentially. So I think over long term, that would probably be the best bet for BlackBerry to stay around, albeit it's not the same brand that we all knew and fell in love with back in the day. So it'll be interesting to see if they accept this takeover or if they fend it off for a little while longer. How long will they stay independent as fiscally speaking and as well as, you know, headcount and capital? They are just a small bit of what they used to be back in the day. It'll be just interesting to see. Other business news, you have Amazon and Disney looking to discuss a ESPN streaming solution. Now, it looks like both Amazon and Disney are in the early talks for a partnership with ESPN streaming service. This is according to anonymous sources. Amazon could take a minority stake in the sports network as part of the potential deal. ESPN is reportedly blowing a monthly charge between $20 and $35 a month, which would make it one of the most expensive streaming services in the company. Now, granted, ESPN is still a revenue gener generator for Disney, which is actually saying something as Disney usually loses money these days. They've lost around $2 billion on the past 10 movies, which I attribute mainly to them injecting politics into it, as well as having an over-market saturation of just pumping out Marvel movies like it's on a conveyor belt. And same with Star Wars. You're just, in my opinion, diluting it because a lot of it is just a copy of a copy of a copy. Perhaps a very apt metaphor for Disney Fun little home experiment, you actually go to a photocopier. Every time you make a copy of a copy, the image just degrades more and more until eventually you can barely recognize what the original image was. Perhaps the most accurate metaphor again for Disney now is they remake all their movies and they seemingly, the only thing they have in common with the original properties is the name, where they change the story, they change the characters. They're really just making what little money they're making off of the memory of what they used to be. Now, having the most expensive, I know people, Americans love sports balls, so they might well pay 20 to $35 per month to watch people throw around the pigskins. Well, I guess nowadays it's synthetic materials, but I don't know how, with all these companies like ESPN, I think, I can't help but think their time is running out because most companies, if you look at the trends of streaming, most of the production houses are making their own. So you have individual, what used to be news, uh, news networks like NBC, they have their own streaming service called Peacock, which is really only known for The Office in terms of their successful intellectual properties. But it's all those issues where individual sporting teams, I don't know why the NFL doesn't have their own streaming service. They're a multi-billion dollar entity. 
why not just build it out yourself and you can keep more of the profits, right? The traditional thing with those organizations where they would sell those streaming rights, that's where they make a lot of their money. And they would sell it to ABC or what have you, traditional news network, and they would make money and those new networks would in turn sell advertising slots. So if you want to show a can of PepsiCo at this commercial, pay us X amount of money while you watch the Bears lose yet another football game because it's the Bears. So it'd be interesting to see, why don't they just build it out themselves? They're big enough where they could. I guess the only logistical issue would be, would they want to handle that in-house and gain the additional profit or just, again, just continue to sell it to the traditional methodologies where you're selling it to traditional TV stations and some other streaming services. But ESPN apparently have a courting company, the MLB, the, so, um, the clubs like the MLB, I believe the NFL as well as the NHL. So they've had conversations. They actually wanted those companies to invest in ESPN. At which point, why, why wouldn't those companies just go, well, I could invest in you, which ESPN is not as popular as it used to be ever since they injected politics into it decades ago. Again, people want to tune in to watch sports balls. They want to hear the sports commentator talk about how they don't like guns or something, which they, they've done. And, they, and by doing so, you alienate all the people who want to watch sports balls who are probably tuning in because they want to tune out of politics. They just want to watch all the players do what they do. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. But in terms of Disney, and I mean, Disney does need to win. Maybe this will be it. But again, Amazon is one of those things where they're your friend today, but enemy or competitor tomorrow. We'll see how that relationship goes long term and if this deal actually hammers out. We shall see. Now, going over to the culture part of the podcast, you have Jordan Peterson response to his tyrannical re-education training. Again, if he doesn't take this training, which he has to pay for, he loses his right to practice his profession in the country of Canada. And he had a response video. It is around 40 minutes. I'm just going to play the first maybe five or 10 minutes because I think it gives a good summary of the situation. Despite my proclivity to feel guilt, which is quite substantive, and despite my temperamental unwillingness to engage in conflict, not only do I not see what I did wrong, I think what I've done on the public communication front is my responsibility as a clinician to tell the truth about what I see, so we'll make it public. Got some fancy music, and this video within two days has 1.6 million views. 119,000 likes. I didn't realize how popular it was on YouTube. He has 7.39 million subscribers, which is astronomically successful. Also, a friendly reminder to click that subscribe button. Trying to get to 3,000 by the end of August. Greatly appreciate it. Also, if you know any software, I'm experimenting with a couple. If you know any that allow really intuitive, really simple use in terms of having a picture-in-picture while recording in real time, I appreciate your suggestions in the comment section as well. I've been looking at a couple of them, but they haven't. I've tested them out. But I haven't found one that really works properly. How you doing? I'm not doing too bad. How are you? Good, actually. All things considered, I'm in Milwaukee. Looking forward to the presidential debate tonight. That's fun. Um, you know, I'm perplexed, I would say, about the situation in Canada. I've been thinking about it this morning. As you know, the 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 court that we appealed the College of Psychologists' decision to decided that the college has, it's within the college's purview to stop me from having any political opinions, as far as I can tell. The 
the, um, the decision, which I posted on Twitter and will post in the description of this video, starts out by making a case for the fundamental reality of freedom of speech for Canadians in Canada, and then says, but, and that's always a bad start when you're talking about freedom of speech, but apparently the college has the right to decide that I can be re-educated forcibly with the risk of my license, essentially because I made political statements that the members of the college don't agree with. And those, those, those um, opinions involve two criticisms of Justin Trudeau, one criticism of his chief of staff, one criticism of an Ottawa city councillor, and then my objection on Joe Rogan to the climate apocalyptic fear-mongering that idiot tyrants are foisting on the general population. Now, apparently that makes me unprofessional and a uh, disgrace to the profession, such that I am now going to be required, the college can go ahead with this, to put me into a re-education program with their so-called social media experts, and that's also, by the way, a profession that does not exist, until I learn my lesson, whatever that is, regardless of how much time that takes, by their judgment, or they can take my license away. So, sounds fair. Think the way we think, or you can't work. And so the, co Jeez. the court says, well, of course you have freedom of speech, Dr. Peterson, but because you're a professional, you're bound by your professional organization. And apparently they're not bound, even though they're a government organization, fundamentally, apparently they're not bound by that fundamental constitutional axiom. And so that shows you, all you Canadians who are listening, and everyone outside of the country who might be the least bit interested in Canada, that shows you exactly what our bloody constitution is worth. Nothing. You also don't have the right to bear arms in Canada. They disarm their civilians. Another sure sign of tyranny as well. And if Canadians are so daft that they don't think that that's a problem, well, they're going to figure it out over the next 15 years because there's absolutely no excuse for this. So that's what I'm thinking. Now, there's part of me that's thinking, well, look, Peterson, the College of Psychologists is after you. You've taken it to court. Now the judges have decided that you're wrong. Maybe you're wrong. And I think, well, I expressed political sentiment and I'm actually informed. And so for the life of me, I can't see how I'm wrong. I think I have a responsibility to say what I think and I think many people agree with that and I think the fundamental consequence of that around the world has been massively beneficial to people. So I think, I think number one, what the hell? And number two, bring it on and see what happens because I will make absolutely every bit of this public in a way that the college and the courts can hardly even imagine. That would be great. I want to know exactly what kind of indoctrination they have from those courses where they re-educate you on what you're allowed to tweet. That bringing the light to those dark, dark shadows would be a great thing for transparency. Because right now, who knows what the courses say? I can only imagine how coercive they are where they actually bludgeon you to think how the way they think. So away we go. So that's how I'm doing. That's how you're doing. Okay. But good. <laughs> yeah, but good. You know, I mean, I didn't look, 
the court decision was worse than I thought it would be. I was already pessimistic. I figured the court would take the coward's way out and basically upgrade the college for procedural inadequacy. Because one of the things the college did, which is just beyond comprehension as far as I'm concerned, is pursue these complaints that were uh, put forward by people distributed all over the world who then claimed in writing falsely to be my clients, when in fact they were never my clients, and not only were they not my clients, they had nothing to do with anyone who was ever a client of mine. And so I figured at least the court would say, well, you know, of course you have the right to police professionals because you're a professional governing body, but they didn't even do that. They just basically said, well, of course you have the right to freedom of speech, except when it comes to, let's say, political opinions. So, you know, then what right do you have at all? And, you know, it's terrible, Michaela, because... There's also, there's also been several instances where citizens, citizens are literally fined for criticizing their dictator. I mean, uh, President uh, Julio... Oh, wait, wait, no, Justin Trudeau. I get confused because there's a not-so-substantiated rumor that his dad is Mr. Castro. I know perfectly well from talking to many physicians, physicians in particular, but also lawyers and psychologists, that no one in Canada, arguably, and this is also extremely strange, it's surreal, there's no one in Canada except me that's actually in a position to fight this because it's hyper expensive and I don't know if my insurance will cover it. It's hyper expensive. It's stressful, it's complex, it's time-consuming, it could involve the uh, suspension of my license, um, and there's not really anything that, that can be done to me that's a threat. I'm not serving as a clinician. I don't have a practice anymore because that became impossible, even though I love doing it. And I'm also not very happy about that. So I'm like the person who can do this, and Canadians have no idea to what degree professionals in Canada are now required not to say what they think or to lie outright. So, so that's one of the perhaps the few silver linings to the situation. It's gonna really magnify and let a lot of people know how little freedom of speech you have in Canada. From a profession, you're not even, it's fascinating to see how bad it is. So for example, therapists are required by law to lie about, let's say, the gender identity of minors. And so for me, especially on the therapy side, if, if you're required by law and by your professional organization to lie cowardly, you're done as a therapist because the only thing you've got as a therapist is honesty. That's it. Honesty is what's curative. So, you know, it's just part of how surreal the world is, and, and particularly how surreal Canada is. It's, uh, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. It's one of those things, and I was going to say, the whole interview is about uh, 38 minutes. I highly suggest you take a look at it. But it is rare to see someone who actually has a backbone in modern society, and he won't back down. He'll actually stand up for what he believes in. And that's perhaps one of the things I admire about Jordan Peterson the most is he's not going to back down from this. He's going to fight this. He's going to show us exactly how far the rabbit hole, how deep the rabbit hole is, so to say. Now, other interesting culture news, you have Google promoting Democrat campaign searches while hiding Republican ones, which 
shouldn't be too big of a surprise as overwhelmingly more often than not, tech companies are usually more on the left ideologically. That's where an overwhelming majority of their donations are going. And it's really where most of their belief systems are. Now, this is a study that was reported by the Daily Wire. And it's a study by, or I'll say a study by the Media Research Center and it shows the bias of it. And it's just, they should talk about even just typing in the query presidential campaign websites, Google returned only Democratic Party candidates. And it's, apparently some of them aren't even running in 2024. And yet they would just hide all the Republican ones. So that's why I say I, I prefer Brave in terms of a browser. And you can certainly say some are better than the others. But how untransparent is that? If you just look up presidential campaigns, you're only seeing one side. They're eliminating a whole other side of the political aisle. That is insane. And then, and, noble, and they actually also censored Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy, which he's actually, this isn't the first time certain Democrats have been selectively censored. Probably the most well-known one is when you had Bernie Sanders, where he actually won the nominee, but the DNC took it away from him. And it shows and perhaps how whipped he is. He's still stuck with the party, even though they stole the opportunity from him when he actually had the rightful votes. And it looks like no Republican candidates appeared on the first page of results, even though the search was conducted the day before the first GOP debate. When you would think they're getting Googled or searched all the time, if the algorithm was more transparent, logically, they would be one of the first results. Now, it looks like one of the first results, of course, is going to be Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and a, looks like a gal by the name of Marianne Williamson. And it looks like, this is according to MRC's Vice President of Free Speech, Dan Schneider, he put it, saying, quote, Google has erased every threat to Joe Biden. We know that Google pulled out all the stops to put Hillary Clinton in the White House, in the White House, and they have continued to interfere with our elections ever since. Compared to social media platforms, it is harder to document what Google does in secret, but we at the MRC Free Speech America caught them red-handed yet again, unquote. Now, apparently they also found the same issue back in 2020, now, the issue is also going to be, you'd have to, to get even more solid data, you probably have to take a look at their algorithm, and that's kind of the secret ingredient, kind of like the ingredients to baking a special um, uh, a confectionery or something that you're cooking in the kitchen. With the tech companies, the biggest, most valuable thing is usually the proprietary intellectual property known as the algorithm, and it's kind of the engine to the whole operation. And they're never going to release that data willingly. And it looks like they've also... Yeah, it looks like they also, they've been censoring other words that are more often than not politically identified as people on the left. So they also note that they have been hiding results for critical race theory of the uh, trans debate or the trans uh, issues with both the uh, children uh, transitioning as well as the adults. And it's kind of like a de facto censorship. They're just removing the results you're looking for, which is concerning in and of itself. And perhaps yet another reason not to use Google as a search platform. Because it's clearly, for many, many, many years, it's been politically charged and it's giving the result, results based on politics. Not too surprising, but yet another good reason to try to find another better browser. Now, other interesting culture news, you have Oliver Anthony turning out to having a fake accent and perhaps being a closet conservative. Now, he is one of the most viral sensations for music that we've seen perhaps in my lifetime. He's an independent music artist and 
without even having a, being signed a record label or having a, like a big shot executive or an agent represent him, he hit number one on the billboards. And there's reports that he's making $40,000 per day in music downloads and streamings. He even turned down an $8 million record deal. And he appeared to be kind of a good old country boy or um, uh, maybe mountains. And the song that really propelled him to fame was the Richmond, North of Richmond, in which he talks about his disdain of, you know, North of Richmond is actually Washington, D.C., saying how they really don't care about us. And a lot of people are saying he's conservative. He he never said he's conservative or liberal or, or he was pretty, he wasn't, so a lot of people are feeling betrayed saying, oh, he, because of this video, he's, he's not really conservative. I mean, I think like a lot of folks, he just kind of feels politically alienated. Although some of his, some of the things he says in this uh, self-interview, interview, this vo uh, vlog, it does sound like he's conservative. Maybe he just doesn't know it yet. So here's his real voice and he's uh, talking in his truck. It's not too long, but it's pretty enter entertaining. With you, is that a different person? Uh, if there is anything for me to address at all with you, it's that... Uh... And within one day, this got 863,000 views and it is number eight trending with 100,000 likes. You know, it's the one thing that has bothered me is seeing people wrap politics up in this. Uh, I'm disappointed to see, like, it's aggravating seeing people on conservative news try to identify with me like I'm one of them. It's aggravating seeing certain musicians and politicians act like we're buddies and, and act like we're fighting the same struggle here, like that we're trying to present the same message. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, and I've tried to be polite to everybody, and um, I've talked to hundreds of people the last two weeks. But it seems like certain people want to just ride the attention of this song to maybe make them their own selves relevant, and that's aggravating as hell. The other thing that I find aggravating is... Politicians, politicians are notorious for doing this, left and right, and... I definitely see why you'd be annoyed at that. Uh, well, you know, like, it was funny seeing my song in the... It was, fun, it was funny seeing it at the presidential debate. Because it's like, I wrote that song about those people, you know? Sure. So for them to have to sit there and listen to that, uh, that cracks me up. Shows you how out of touch politicians are, where politicians are like, oh yeah, look at this song. It's like, yeah, the song's about you. It's always about how you've been in politics for 40, 50, 60 years, and yet you have done nothing for the middle class. Your, show, your list of accomplishments can be listed on a cocktail napkin, which is a small napkin, so mild burn. <laughs> uh, but it was funny kind of seeing the response to it. Like, that song has nothing to do with Joe Biden, you know? It's a lot bigger than Joe Biden. Um, That song's written about the people on the on that stage, and a lot more too, not just them, but, but definitely them. It's cool seeing some of my other music come out because people are, I guess, starting to appreciate and understand what it is I'm really trying to say. It's hard to get a message out about, about your political ideology or your belief about the world in three minutes and some change. Um, but I, hate, I do hate to see that song being weaponized. Like I see, I see the right trying to characterize me as one of their own, 
and I see the left trying to um, trying to discredit me. I guess in retaliation. Uh, that shit's got to stop. If you watch the response videos on YouTube to the song, it's not conservative people responding to the song. It's not even necessarily Americans responding to the song. Um, I don't know that I've seen anything get such positive response from such a diverse group of people. And I think that terrifies the people that I sing about in that song. And they've done everything they can the last two weeks to make me look like a fool, to spin my words, to try to stick me in a political bucket. Overnight. Good old YouTube. Gotta have the commercials. Although, the rates are pretty down these days, so if they're not making too much on these, it'll be interesting to see how long until they just force us all to buy YouTube Premium. I was shocked. I actually met someone for the first time in my life who pays for YouTube Premium. I almost didn't believe him. I had to double check. I'd be like, wait, wait you do? Like, you're like, you're like one of 15 you pay for it. I, I'm only moderately joking. And they can keep trying. <laughs> but I'm just going to keep on writing. And I've got a lot of words to put down on paper, and I've got, I've got a lot of songs to put to chords, and um, I don't know what my music career is going to look like. I don't know how many shows I'm going to do and how many tours I'm going to put on, but I am going to stay true to my word. I'm, I'm going to write, I'm going to write, produce, and distribute authentic music that represents people, and not politics. I do feel compelled to address something. Um, since I have addressed the conservatives, I do need to address the left as well because they're sending a message out that that, that initial song that sort of shot me up the radar, Richmond North of Richmond, is, is an attack against the poor. If you listen to my other music, it's obvious that all of my songs that reference class defend the poor. Uh, Doggone it's a good example of that. Needles in the street, folks hardly surviving on sidewalks next to highways full of cars self-driving. The poor keep hurting and the rich keep thriving. It's like, that's what I like to sing about. And, you know, the English language is interpretive, and so I do understand, like, there may be some people who, who misunderstood my words in Richmond, North of Richmond. But I've got to be clear that my message, like with any of my songs, it references the inefficiencies of the government because of the politicians within it that are engulfed in bribes and extortion and you know the words say that there's people on the street with nothing to eat in the obese milk and welfare that references a news article I read earlier this summer that adolescent kids in Richmond are missing meals over the summer because their parents can't afford to feed them and they're not in school to eat cafeteria lunch. And meanwhile, I think like 30 or 40% of the food bought with welfare or EBT money is, um, is in a classification of like snack food and soda. I think 10% spent on soda and I want to say like 20 or 30% spent on junk food. It's astonishing how many places accept the EBT where they're allowed to buy those things that are the worst things for them, like a can of high fructose corn syrup. If you're in economic need and you're poor, like there's no logical reason why that, why you should be purchasing that product. It's not, 
certainly not making you healthy or smarter or stronger. Instead, antithesis is quite the opposite. It's actually making you, you're just making your life worse. And yet there is a not a significant percentage of people who are using those funds for those products, making the whole situation worse. And that's not the fault of those people. Uh, welfare only makes up a, a small percentage of our budget. Well, I'm going to have to stop them right there. Welfare, and it depends on how you define welfare in the United States. Some people put Social Security in there. Technically, Social Security is where the government puts a gun to your head and said, hey, give me your paycheck. We're going to pretend to save for you because we think we can do better. That's been debunked because clearly they can't or they don't. They've used that money for a myriad of different things that they shouldn't have. And that's one of the biggest costs when it comes to the U.S. budget. But an astonishing amount of people are on welfare and social services. Depending on what uh, studies you're looking at, I actually found one. And this is, again, this is from housecommitteebudget.gov. And that one noted that the federal government spent $1.19 trillion on 80 welfare programs, which also include direct-to-the-consumer, uh, direct-to-the-end-user, in this case, citizen, and that they claim it's, a, um, what was it, 90% of the federal budget breakdown, and they also claim that 59 million Americans received some, some form of welfare. That equates to about 19% of the U.S. population. I didn't believe that when I first read it. I went to a couple of websites, and they all seem to be about that percentage. If you see different um, statistics, let me know in the comments. I always want to read more, get some more knowledge, and if appropriate, do redactions as I've done before with other topics. But it's astonishing how many people are on those programs, even more concerning when they stay on the programs, where I'm one of those, so, I'm one of those folks where I want to say, I know people come on hard times. I always think it's, I think the best policy we had the community or religious organizations around them help them because that's where you foster community and you have an incentive to pay them back. When you have... When you get handouts from the government, there's not a personal connection. You just see a faceless government where they take individuals' money and they redistribute it. So in terms of successful people, situations in which you help people get on their own two feet, I think the more effective one is having community help, religious help, where people close to your proximity, they're helping you get back on your feet, helping you get a job. And I know that's not easy, but I think that formula is the best formula for success because you do see with the government methodology, people, there's a high percentage of people who are staying on those programs for long term when the intention is, in my opinion, for short term to help them get to a better place. Now, granted, the pessimist in me says it's almost intentional because then you're dependent on the government, then they get more votes from you. So I think there's kind of a negative incentive there. But I digress. It's not, it's not a small, it's not an insignificant number of people. But I digress. We'll get back to what Mr. Anthony is saying. You know, we can we can fuel a proxy war in a foreign land, but we can't take care of our own. That's all the song's trying to say. And I, that's a good point. I think people on the left and the right, you're seeing more and more people come to this consensus where they're concerned where we sent over $100 billion to Ukraine, both in cash as well as fiscal or um, physical gear, just of military gear, humanitarian aid. But you still have crumbling roads in the United States. You have hundreds of millions of Americans who are struggling and... It looks like there's a lot of resources being sent to countries who have who would never help us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't help the other countries. There are certain instances that are national security, certain supply chain concerns when it comes to defense components. Taiwan would be a big one since they're pretty much the headquarters for most of the semiconductor manufacturing on the planet. But I think a lot of people can relate to this issue or this message. 
And it's not a left or right thing. I think more people in the middle, and there's more overlap than we think, which again, politicians don't want, politicians don't want us that. They want us fighting each other. So then they get their votes, they get their votes. And interesting enough, barely anything gets done. But that's just my three cents. It's just saying that the government takes people who are needy dependent and makes them needy independent. And at some point I will dissect all my lyrics of all my songs if that's what I need to do. Uh, I mean, 30 some million people understood what I was saying. I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of, I find that kind of annoying or boring when an author does that or a musician does it. Like, leave something to the imagination for the end user to interpret. So the reasons I, on average, I really don't like movie adaptations of books. Well, most movies these days are crap anyway, but some of the things where it kind of takes away a little bit of your imagination and takes a little bit of your creativity because in your mind, you put the whole world together from a book and then you have someone in Hollywood put it on the screen and inevitably it's never going to be as good as a book and it takes away your imagination. So, I mean, he's, that might help him clarify a few things, but I don't know, I feel like, I feel like he's kind of acquiescing, acquiescing to the criticisms if you were to do that. But it only takes a few to try to uh, derail the train, you know, to try to send out false narratives. And I'm sure there'll be more of that to come. It's like, uh, it's driving people crazy to see the unity that's come from this, from all walks. This isn't a Republican and Democrat thing. This isn't even an, a, a United States thing. Like this has been a global response. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Go on YouTube and watch all the response videos, you know? And don't shoot the messenger. Like, I'm a nobody. It's my belief that divine intervention has put me in this position in this point in time to get a message across, and that's all there is to it. Like, I'm nobody special. You know, I, I, I feel terrible almost that I've been put in this place because there, there are a lot of artists and musicians out there that are far more talented that have put in way more hours than me. Like, I don't deserve, I, I don't deserve to sit in the top five places on the iTunes charts. Debatable. And the truth is I really could give a shit less about the iTunes charts. What I care about is connecting with people. What I care about is... I don't, I don't know what this country is going to look like in 10 or 20 years if things don't change. I don't know what this world's going to look like. And, like, something has to be done about it, you know? There's been too many people die. There's been too many people sacrifice everything they've had. People die before they even, before they're even 18, you know? Just so for us to all sit here and just do the stupid shit it is that we do every day that keeps us all, all beat down and divided. Like, that's what I want to see stop. And I'm going to do everything I can to influence that at all costs. Even if it does, um, even if it does throw my world upside down, it's what it's well worth it. But for now, I'm hanging in there and I'm I'm doing what I can, and and I I really appreciate everybody who's along for the ride. So uh, there's a lot more to come, and I'm excited for it. And I, I'll see you on the next one. If you look at the comments on this video, I've yet to find a negative comment. Pretty much. Everyone 
is cheering him on. So one of my favorites actually from Hickok45, one of the best gun reviewers on YouTube. And his response got 3.5 thousand likes. Now he says, quote, try to ignore the negative stuff and just do what feels right to you. There will always be a very loud, small percentage of troublemakers looking for attention. Don't ever let the tag wail the dog. Congrats on your success at being yourself. Stay the way. Let's see. Another one says, thank you from a 60-year-old American Christian mama grandma. Your music touches my heart and soul. As one Virginia to another, don't change. Keep being yourself. Keep singing. Love your brother. Yeah, I'm, and again, there are, we're not going to scroll through all of them. There's 21, 25,000 comments, but they're just overwhelmingly saying, do not stop. Hang in there. Great message. Now, it is interesting to note that some of the messages that he was portraying would be traditionally more conservative, but I agree there is a lot of things in the middle. And in terms of his career and, you know, attracting the, the greatest number of audience members, I think the track he's going, and again, he might be completely authentic. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying with the current message that he has, I think that's the best route to go in terms of mass market. And it'll be interesting to see how his career progresses as his songs just resonate with more and more people and flies off the charts. Let me know in the comments. Are you a fan of the song Richmond, North of Richmond? It's so popular, someone actually already put a one-hour loop on the YouTube that's gotten like 100,000 hits. I actually listened to, listened to that when I was editing a couple days ago. It was pretty addictingly good. Other interesting cultural news, you have Anheuser-Busch tweet. They have a Yankee tweak, but it's uh, not a doodle, but more of a dud. Now, this is where they actually did a tweet with the Yankees, a little Yankees cup, and it said, quote, proud to his waist out, proud to hit his waist out of the ballpark, unquote. And all these statistics are taken within 48 hours of the original post. The original post got 7,390 views, which for a big brand is nothing. That's terrible. And it got 36 likes. 36 likes. That's not even the people who work at Anheuser-Busch. Out of 7,390 views, 36 people liked it. That equates to 0.48% of people liking that post. Also known as god-awful. Now, one of the top responses were, of course, is subsequently quickly ratioed, as the youth might say. That is from Rich Mooney, who's pretty popular. He's one who does a lot of the polls asking, would you rather have a Bud Light or not a Bud Light? And they haven't blocked him yet, interestingly enough. They did block me for simply replying to one of the Bud Light tweets who said, hey, it's time to get Bud Light. All I said, and it was a picture of a case of Yangling Light and a case of Yangling in front of an American flag, and I said, thanks for the reminder for me to go buy Yangling, and they blocked me after that. They didn't block the YouTube channel the or the, the, the Twitter URL, The Topping Show, which that tweet actually responded with the meme, this is fine. We have Brendan Whitworth's face I put, and then the caption said $300 million, or $390 million in sales lost, and it's Brandon's face and he goes, this is fine, and fire all around him. They didn't block that profile, but they blocked my personal profile, interestingly enough. Now, Richard Mooney said, quote, no improvement on the horizon for Bud Light or Budweiser, for the week, Bud Light is down 28.1% in volume from same time period last, uh, same week last year. And he got 250 views and seven likes, which is a 2.8% like ratio. And another one was a picture of Riley Gaines, the former collegiate athlete or swimming athlete who became a female rights advocate where her position is she was competing against a biological man 
actually tied with him, and her position is men should not, biological men should not be competing in women's sports and stealing the opportunities from including sponsorships, trophies, and opportunities. Now, she went on, or the picture or the meme of her was, I believe it was her as well, saying, uh, or no, it was a Riley Gaines, sorry, it's a picture of Riley Gaines, and it was a quote of her saying, quote, men should not be competing against women or changing in locker rooms under any circumstance. That particular response tweet got 106 views and nine likes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but a ratio, nevertheless, of 8.49%, which is quite good. Now, it is interesting to note just more and more negativity towards this brand. I don't see it stopping anytime soon. The people who are boycotting Bud Light aren't stopping. If anything, they're doubling down. And of course, Anderson Bush, Bud Light, Budweiser, all the brands, they, thus far, has done, they haven't done anything to actually pull it out of this tailspin. I don't think they'll be able to, but time shall tell. Now, other interesting cultural news, you have Super Mario Voice to retire after 25 years. Oh, landed an end of a legacy. Now, this was on X, formerly known as Twitter, where the official Nintendo account said that Charles uh, Martinez would no longer be voicing the iconic role after 25 years. They specifically said, quote, Charles uh, Martina has been the original Super Mario, uh, sorry, the original voice of Super Mario in Nintendo games for a long time, as far back as Super Mario 64. Charles is now moving on into a brand new role of marketing ambassadors. With, with this transition, he'll be stepping back from recording character voices for our games, but he'll continue to travel the world sharing the voice of Mario and interacting with you all. It has been an honor working with Charles to help bring to help bring Mario to life for so many years, and we want to thank and celebrate him. Please keep an eye out for a special video game message from Sigeru uh, Miyamoto and Charles himself, which we will post in a future date. And that got 227,000 likes and 38.6 million views. And it's sad that he is moving on to a new position. And I'm one of those folks where I, I'll contend that Nintendo 64 was the pinnacle of video games. It was there's that good mix of, you still had some old school graphics, but it looked good enough or like new enough where it's pretty damn good. And of course, nowadays video games have photorealism because the graphics are so good. It's getting to the point where within a couple years, it'll be indistinguishable from reality. That's right around the corner. And I remember, I mean, I, 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 every time I think of Mario, I think of the voice from the Nintendo 64, Super Mario 64, because I know it's cliche to say, but I had that growing up as a child. Wow, it took a long time to get that N64, but it was worth it. So it's sad to see you moving on to a new role. There's a lot of speculation that they're thinking maybe Chris Pratt will be the new voice. He is a, obviously a very famous Hollywood actor, and he was the voice actor for Super Mario and the latest movie, which was a billion-dollar success. Or actually, this is $1.3 billion. Quite successful. It went over the billion-dollar mark, which is a rare feat in and of itself. Only a couple movies throughout history have had that achievement. But it'll be interesting to get... Is a is a knockout movie, but telling a voice to a brand that is a long term endeavor. I mean, to have someone be the brand voice for twenty five years, and also Chris, it'll be he's more controversial in terms of Hollywood really doesn't like him too much because he's actually has Christian and faith background. He eats meat like a man, and he actually hunts. He actually has pictures of him where he like he'll hunt a deer and he'll have a picture of all the things he's gonna eat, and he you know freaks out everyone who's never realized. Oh wait a minute. Meat just doesn't, the sort just doesn't magically have meat in the in the meat section. It actually comes from an animal. I can't believe it. And obviously there's a lot of people who are ignorant in that regard. But uh, there are some people who are, 
they're not fans of him because of those silly reasons. Personally, I think that'd be a brilliant idea. If people love the movie, it's a great voice for the film. That I think that'd be a good fit for it going forward, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I always say, time shall tell. Now, going on to the political part of the podcast, you have Rudy Giuliani surrendering to Fulton County. Is, is this the frog in the boiling water, so to say? And it's slowly pulling up. It seems like all of the people on the right are being arrested. All of Trump's former allies, his lawyers, are being arrested. Where you're supposed to have, I forget the legal term, but you're not supposed to be able to arrest someone's lawyer. Now, this was last week, and Rudy Giuliani quoted saying, quote, whether you dislike or you like Donald Trump, they're coming at, they're, they're going to come for you, unquote. Now, this is the former, well, I was going to say, for people who are perhaps international listeners, but he's a former New York City mayor. He, be, he was Trump's lawyer, and he's being arrested in connection with the efforts to avoid the state's 2020 election results. Great way to, great intimidation factor. I don't know who's going to want to represent Trump when they're arresting all of his lawyers. I think one of the big questions that a lot of people are concerned about in terms of you know, political prosecution and arresting your political opponent, why now? Election is right around the corner. Why was why were, why weren't all these brought to the light in 2020 or 2021? It it seems very the timing is very convenient to uh, so going to the political chess analogy to kind of corner put Trump in check to move all the pieces around so he can't make any moves. They're doing it at the time where he has to be mobile. He's supposed to be out there campaigning. He was just arrested in Fulton County, but he did make bail, so he's out. But he has these court dates where he's going to show up in person. And it seems like everyone who was formerly supporting him, they're all being put in jail. Now, it looks like, specifically, he's on 13, he's, um, Giuliani specifically, he's in the office on 13 counts of charges, including violation of Georgia racketeering, in uh, racketeering influence and the Corruption Organizations Act. And when asked, when asked about it, well, let's see, right outside the apartment, he had a quick, oh, had a quick statement. To torture, and I'm feeling very, very good about it because I feel like I'm defending the rights of all Americans, as I did so many times as a United States attorney. People, people like to say I'm different. The same Rudy Giuliani that took down the mafia, that made New York City the safest city in America reduced crime more than any mayor in the history of any city, anywhere, and I'm fighting for justice. I have been from the first moment I represented Donald Trump and this man. I'm going to Fulton County to comply with the law, which I always do. I'll, uh, I don't know if I plead today, but if I do, I plead not guilty. And I get photographed. Isn't that nice? A, a mugshot for the man who probably put the worst criminals in the 20th century in jail. You find Ironic. a prosecutor who has a better record than mine in the last hundred years. They get home, or a man. And they're gonna, they're going to, they're gonna degrade themselves by doing a mugshot of me. Like people will recognize me. And yeah, of course they can fingerprint me, but I've been fingerprinted 150 times. So this will turn out exactly like the FBI search turned out. They are lying. I'm telling the truth. Interesting. It looks like is exclusive. Can't help but notice all his allies are getting arrested. And will this increase support for Trump, or in, or will more people think he's guilty because he's technically being he's you know all these charges are coming up against him? It'll be interesting to see if this helps him in the polls or what happens to all his allies. But it'll be interesting to see time, as I always say, shall tell.
Other interesting political news, you have the GOP-led House Judiciary Committee opening up an investigation into Fannie Willis. Now, it looks like they launched an investigation into Fulton County uh, Attorney, uh, Je Georgia General Attorney Fannie Willis. This is as Trump is surrendering himself to Fulton County, as well as Mayor Giuliani, as well as a couple of other Trump's lawyers for the for, for their attempt, alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, it looks like representatives on the committee, and they, this is, again, according to Forbes.com, led by Representative Jim Jim Jordan from Rep, uh, Republican from Ohio, they sent, Republicans are notorious for this, they sent a letter to Willis Thursday asking her to turn over information to the committee, writing her indictment of Trump and his allies, writing her, in, sorry, indictment of Trump and his allies were, quote, substantial, involves substantial federal interests. The letter claims Willis in Indictment appears to be an attempt to use state criminal law to regulate and conduct the conduct of federal officials acting in their official capacities. It also ra raises whether Willis will coordinating with federal prosecutors in the, in the Justice Department regarding her investigation into Trump and his allies, and whether any federal funds were used as part of her probe. Willis had previously denied that she'd be in any contact with Special Counsel Jack Smith, who's running the DOJ's two investigations into Trump regarding classified documents in the 2020 election, telling WABE in July before any indictments were issued, quote, I don't know what Jack Smith is doing, and Jack Smith doesn't know what I'm doing. Now, the lawmakers also accused the DA's indictment of being politically motivated, writing Willis fundraising off of the indictment before it came out and speculating bribing charges during the GOP presidential primary, suggesting the indictment was, quote, designed to interfere with the 2024 presidential election. The claims by House Republicans echo the criticism that Trump has levied against the DA and the charges against him as he unsuccessfully tried to have Willis disqualified from the investigation and repeatedly claimed that DA is politically biased against him and the indictment is an attempt to hurt his campaign. The letter goes on to say he asked Willis to turn over information to the committee and related to her office, use the federal funds in its executive communication with the DOJ or any executive branch officials, suggesting the committee could use investigation to impose new legislation regarding immunity for the federal officials and state investigations, special counsel authorities, or the permissible use of federal funds. Now, it's one of those things where I doubt anything will ever happen. Even if she's guilty or innocent, I doubt anything will happen from this. Because Republicans are notorious for writing strongly worded letters. Ooh. But never actually following through on damn near anything they say they're going to do. So, Right now, if Republicans really cared about the election integrity and the Americans' faith in the whole system, they'd be fighting tooth and nail against all of this. They'd be in the courtrooms. They'd be doing the same thing the other side, but they're doing nothing. They, they simply just sit down and they write an angry worded letter. They're not actually going to... I doubt they're actually going to launch investigations to actually see and prove if anything, any of this is politically motivated. From the outside, it sure sounds like it, but let me in the comments. Do you think they'll actually do anything this time? Will they go beyond a strongly worded letter? I swear, maybe, that's, I don't know, the pen pals? It seems to be their favorite thing, writing strongly worded letters, but at the end of the day, never actually getting much darn near anything done. But as it'll be interesting to see. Let me know in the comments. Do you think they'll actually do anything or probably, probably not. They'll, 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 they'll They'll probably just send the angry, the angry letter. We'll see. Let me in the comments if you think I'll go actually do anything this time. Now, other political news: you have the F James O'Keefe under investigation. First, they invest, and there's a lot of speculation. 
Can't help but notice a lot of his, his investigations broke real, real changing stories that kind of proved that Trump is right in many regards. Now, it looks like they first arrested Trump's lawyers. Now they're going after journalists. The metaphor of the frog boiling in the water is perhaps coming to the light. Now it looks like the founder, former founder, or he's always the founder of Project Veritas, this old journalism company that James O'Keefe founded. Now it looks like the Westchester County District Attorney Office confirmed last Friday that they are, quote, looking into matters concerning James O'Keefe, who was suspended in February and later fired as the chairman and CEO of Project Veritas. And it looks like Going over the Associated Press, James O'Keefe lawyer James Lippman blamed the investigation on disgruntled former employees of Project Veritas who had a problem with the CEO using too many car services to, to pay for fundraising efforts and which paid their salaries. So there's a falling out where I think he was raising, what was it? James O'Keefe, they were saying his lavish spending including a $10,000 for a helicopter ride, $150,000 on private car services over an 18 month span and staying in hotel, um, expensive luxury hotels. Now, it should be known that in 2000, uh, a lot of these allegations are going back in time. In 2012, it looks like they brought in more than 200, or sorry, uh, so in 2021, they raised $20 million. And a lot of that comes from the exact proportion of James O'Keefe going out there, breaking these stories, and going to these fundraisers all over the US. So in terms of time logistics, it makes sense for him to be using private helicopters, private planes, because he's got 10, 20, 10 to 20 meetings a day, both geographically and on the phone. And in interviews, he's confirmed this, where he's talking about his tight schedule. And interestingly enough, if you ask most people that donate to him, they really don't care. Like, they don't care how he spends, how he chooses to spend the funds, they just want him to break the stories and bring light to the darkness. You have multiple people reiterating this. Now, according to the lawsuit, Project Veritas board had intended to reinstate um, Keith from his suspension with a pro quote, quote, with appropriate safeguards, but ultimately terminated his employment in May after he claimed the media in media interviews that, that the company had fired him over his recent report in which he broke a large pharmaceutical company admitting they were making more mutated viruses as well as appeasing a pharmaceutical company or reports on the COVID-19. So we're interested to see as he faces further prosecution, how this will be brought to, how it will pan out. But interesting that someone else who happened to help Trump or show Trump in a good light and break some stories that, you know, kind of prove Trump's narrative in some cases, now he's being investigated. He might be thrown behind bars. Fascinating to see what this dystopian seems to breaking down into. Now, other interesting culture news, you have the Biden administration cutting funding for a school archery program which of all the things for people to cut funding from why would you why would you break why would you take that away now it looks like specifically the Biden administration this is thanks to a report by dailywire.com they're blocking funding for a school hunting and archery programs approved under the elementary and secondary education act of 1965 also known as the ESA e-s-e-a these acronyms sound cool they kind of do now, it looks like the Education Department has cut off funding for school hunting and archery programs because of the interpretation of a provision in legislation passed last year under the Bipartisan Safety Communities Act, unquote. Which, I don't know who that's supposed to be in terms of a pejorative voice, but there is nothing bipartisan about that. You just had a couple of rhinos who acquiesced because it sounds like something everyone should agree with. 
Kind of like the Patriot Act, it sounds good. What could be bad about it? Well, turns out damn near everything is it eviscerated everything from civil rights and liberties to your privacy and having any iota of real privacy in the United States. So I always tell people, the, the more attractive a bill sounds, the more BS it usually is. For left and the right side of the political aisle, they love to put out these bills where people who are not educated in the topics will just think, oh yeah, that sounds good. The, the Bipartisan Safety Communities Act, well, that sounds great. Oh, wait a minute, it's redefining what a firearm purchaser is or a firearm seller is. So it makes all firearm sales basically illegal unless you have proper paperwork. You can't actually sell an old old rifle to your grandpa. You can't sell, you can't give your sister a gun if she wanted one. Because now they're going to redefine you as a dealership. Or you need an FFL more accurately, which is a federal firearms license in which you have to have a license from the federal government to sell a firearm to, oh, oh wait, and you also have to do a background check and paperwork. So yeah, it sounded good, but terrible for civil liberties. Now, the law included an amendment to the ESA that bans taxpayer funds from being used on, quote, training in the use of dangerous weapon. Ridiculous. Now, earlier this month, GOP Senators John Corinth of Texas and Tom Tills of North Carolina wrote to the Education Secretary Miguel Cardona concerned with the Department of Education interpretation of the amendment. And Corinth and Tills introduced the BSCA last year among Senators Chris, Chris Murphy, Democrat Connecticut, and Christian Sills from um, Independent from Arizona, saying, quote, we are alarmed to learn that recently that the Department of Education has misinterpreted the BCSA to require the def defending of certain longstanding education and enrichment programs, specifically archery and hunter education classes for thousands of children who rely on these programs to develop life skills, learn firearm safety, and build self-esteem, unquote. Corinth and Tills wrote, according to Fox News. This department, they go on to say, quote, this department mistakes mistakenly believes that the BSCA preludes funding from these enrichment enrichment programs, etc. said. Such an interpretation contradicts the congressional intent with the text of the BSCA. And it also says, quote, it is ironic that the U.S. Department of Education is actively denying young Americans the chance to educate themselves on basic firearm and hunting safety so they can do, so they can go afield knowing how to keep themselves, their friends, their family safe, unquote. Which, of course, safety is never the actual intention. They just want you to be, in my opinion, they want you to be self-reliant on the government in this case, as well as they don't want it almost is if they want bad things to happen by design. I think firearm education should be in every public school because one of the things where I think people on the left and the right could agree with is sometimes when a kid finds a gun and it's not depending on how the parent is securing it or they get access to it, they might not how to they might not know the four simple rules of gun safety. There's no reason that it shouldn't be taught in a public school, even if it's just a poster board. Just tell them if you do find a gun, don't touch it. Go tell an adult, ideally your parent or your garden guardian and you let them know where it is. It's a lack of education sometimes that can be deadly. And I don't think that should be a political issue in terms of, I think people on the left and the right should both come together and say, hey, let's do some basic firearm training. So if they ever have a situation in which they come across a firearm, they know how to safely and properly handle the situation. Or in this case, they train them how to safely and properly use the item. But of course, they don't want you to be able to have the ability to defend yourself they want you to acquiesce to the government doing everything for you, in my opinion, at least that's ideologically on one side of the aisle. They don't want you to have the, the God-given right to defend yourself, get a loan, be able to provide food for yourself. Now, the NRA actually chimed in. They said, quote, no surprise. This is yet another example of an anti-gun, anti-hunting administration abusing an ambiguous law filled with an undefined and overly broad provisions to push their radical agenda, unquote, which 
The NRA is a far from perfect organization. They have done a lot of good throughout the years in terms of safety training, especially. They have a lot of courses, a lot of good teachers that go around and do a lot of good in that regard. But sometimes in terms of political activity, I feel like they acquiesce and bend the knee too much, which is why more people I know personally, they support organizations like Gun Owners of America, which advertises being a no compromise gun rights advocacy group. But in this case, I think they are spot on. Again, I think hunting is a great way, not just to teach personal responsibility for youngsters, but also teaches you how to get natural good food and gives you an appreciation for where your food comes from. A lot of people don't realize the work that goes into the farmers, not just planting the corn, but also the farmers who are raising the steers, the farmers or the hunters who are bringing the deer meat back to the market. A lot of people don't know how much work, how much passion and respect goes into that process. And I think that'd be a good thing to teach that. And this is yet another good example of the, these broad laws are terrible, but it's almost, it's by design because they want the law to be as broad as possible so they can interpret it however they want. And people on the right do this as well. People on the right voted for the Patriot Act, which stripped so many, all Americans basically of their semblance of privacy and many individual liberties. And it'll be interesting to see, I hope more people are drawn to this article and they're really drawn to this issue because I think, again, these trainings and these opportunities are paramount to someone's, um, an up and coming and a young adult's overall development. And you can learn a lot of great things from them. And unfortunately, I think it has been just the government just, you know, on average, they're anti-gun. They don't want you to have gun. They're very programmed for themselves, but not for the, not for the average Americans. No, no, no. You must rely on them. So unfortunately, I'm not too surprised that they're using this to strip away opportunities from children in schools. But yet another good reason to write your representatives and let them know, hey, keep keep the pedal to metal on this issue. We're behind you. You push this. You actually get this overturned. You do something. Get this funding back to the schools. I'll reelect you appropriately. But I always say, time shall tell. Other interesting political news. You have Andy No winning $300,000 in damages from the 2019 Portland Antifa attack. Now, this is after he lost in court uh, a couple of weeks ago, but this was him in civil court where the bar is much lower. Although I would say there's no justice last week where the defendant literally said they are Antifa. They intimidated the jury and yet it is Portland, Oregon. And they kind of, you get what you vote for over there and they like chaos and they give more rights to criminals and law abiding citizens. This being a perfect example. Andy you know, is one of the best independent reporters out there. And as far as I know, he's another, you know, people of this ever growing group where they're not, someone hard left, they're not hard right, they're more, they feel politically alienated, they're more in the middle. And it looks like, this is according to Post, Lilla, uh, Post Millennial, they know that he actually is a, a senior editor, sorry, at the at that institu institution, that organization, and he knows awarded $300,000 after three alleged Antifa defendants failed to defend themselves in court as part of a lawsuit accusing them of assault during a 2019 protest riot in Portland. Now it looks like uh, Multiomath County Circuit Judge uh, Champone Silplasi divided the damages among the three defendants who did not show up to defend themselves. The trial, the trial, which took approximately one hour, featured Andy No giving his unchallenged testimony. Now, it's fascinating to see the cowardice of some of the people where they won't even show up because they know they're guilty. Now, it looks like the Oregonian revealed that the three accused in the case were Madison Allen, Catherine Belaya, and Joseph Evans, who go by the legal name of Samith Samich Overkill Shot Deputy? What? 
I was going to say that some people change their, change their names. It's beyond me. Now, the court hearing were held in a virtual setting on Monday at the, the county courthouse. The three defendants were found guilt, uh, found default on July 14th by the pre-trial judge for not responding to Andy Noe's complaint. They did not appear until the civil jury held earlier this month. They re the post-millennial reported that Alan Belia and shot du deputy were allegedly involved in the brutal assault of Andy Noe on June 29th, 2019. Andy Noe was reportedly attacked by the alleged, alleged Rose Antifa members while reporting on an event in Portland, Oregon. This incident has later become known as the milkshake incident. So it is nice to see. So not only was a milkshake hurled at Andy Noe, he's also punched and kicked. He suffered several injuries, including a significant injury to his brain. Video footage, video footage of the incident was submitted to the court by Andy Noe's attorney, Dorothy Yamatado, as evidence during the hearing. And it is astonishing to see uh, now, the downside is most of these Antifa members are deadbeats or living with their parents. I don't know if they'll actually get any fiscal. I don't know if they're actually going to be able to pay. But it is a good moral victory where it seems like there's a, a small iota of justice. Although, granted, it's just partially just because they didn't show up. So, by default, they were guilty. But it's astonishing. He's, he's a braver than most to actually go to Portland, Oregon, which is a city where astrology is illegal, but drugs are not. So fascinating their priorities over there but a small i suppose a good small moral victory in what seems to be a time in which criminals have more rights than average citizens or law-abiding citizens and the da's don't prosecute and the courts just kind of keep moving that direction so perhaps a small a shimmer a little slim shiver of hope some might say other interesting political news you have united auto workers they want the same benefits that led to the bankruptcy of General Motors and Chrysler back in 2009. Now, this is in the political section of the podcast, partially because the UAW is a huge political influence. They donate more to politicians than we could possibly fathom. Again, something I think is unfair about unions when you're coerced or you're forced to join them in some instances. They're putting a lot of their funding. They don't give it to the, un the union dues you're paying. They're not going to fellow union members, or if a union member gets sick, it's not going to take care of him. It's, they're sending it to politicians more often than not, politically on the left. And the politicians, in turn, usually give them big contracts. They bail them out when they go bankrupt. It's one of those dirty secrets or not so dirty. It's a little dirty secret that not a lot of people talk about. It's one of those things where it's very notorious, especially like the teachers' unions. You have all these cities where the teachers' unions will donate hundreds of millions of dollars to politicians. Then they get elected. Then, in turn, they give the teachers all raises. It seems morally vacuous, and I would tend to agree with that statement. And yet, I don't see a lot of public support to stop it, unfortunately. So the reason it's in the politicians, it, well, famously, the UAW helped elect many politicians throughout history. Now, the contract expires September 14th, and there's nearly 150,000 members of the United Auto Workers that work at the Big Three. Now, the Big Three are known as the Detroit Big Three. You have General Motors, you also have Chrysler, as well as Ford. Although, ironically, Ford isn't even headquartered in Detroit. They're over in Arbor Hills, Michigan. Nice, safe suburb up north. General Motors is in Detroit. They're braver than the most. It's uh, that city. You a good uh, cultural, good cultural, fascinating cultural instance where there was one time in history when the Detroit was the richest, most prosperous city on the planet. Times have certainly changed. Now, the contract with the big three expires September 14th, and they recently voted where, yeah, we, we are willing to, to strike. So 
it's not 100% certain that's going to be a strike, but it's showing that the members of the union are in favor of a strike or a shutdown. Now, the 10, or sorry, the thing, the six things they want in particular are one, the elimination of wage tiers, which is similar to how the Teamsters came through for the, for the UPS workers recently to avoid strike. Now, these wage tiers, and again, this is as far as my understanding, it is an instance where once you join a union or you get hired on, you have a lower tier because you just started. And then you have a higher tier, usually not based on your actual performance or doing good, but more often than not, it's tenure. So just work there long enough and you get upgraded and you get paid more, which someone who's a I'm capitalist, I like a free market, I'm kind of against you know just rewarding people for just existing. But that's just my three cents in that instance. And it's one of those things that doesn't seem, I don't know how this, it'll be interesting that they want the elimination of wage tiers. It'll certainly increase, the, it'll exponentially increase the cost of wages because instead of real, realistically, and again, it means the company's only going to hire someone who has a very tenured career because they're coerced, I mean forced, I mean mandated with the contract if they get their way. You got to pay the new person just as much as the person who's been there for 20 years. Well, if that's the case, if you hire someone who doesn't have the skill set, like someone who's just graduating college or just graduated high school and they don't have a lot of automotive experience, well, you can't afford to pay them that big wage because they don't have the skill set to have the output, the production to hit that wage. Very similar to these arbitrary minimum wage laws where if you don't have the skill set, the company's losing money on that person, which in mo most instances is not is not viable. You can certainly invest in new employees, which you know every new hire usually loses money for the first few months as you're training them and they're becoming more productive. But let's get back to their list of audacious demands. The second thing they want is double digit pay raises. Jesus, double digits? Never in my life have I had that double digit pay raises. Now, it's almost as if they're a hungry big guy at a, din a diner. I'm trying to think of a pejorative scenario appropriate enough, but they see kind of like a, perhaps a greedy, a fish? No, a donkey? Yeah, maybe. But they're seeing these companies make record profits. However, they're not seeing these companies need to pivot because they need to change because they're, ch they're redefining the whole company. GM is going to become full electric by 2030 for Cadillac brand. And then by 2035 for the whole company, that's going to take billions in reinvestment, not just in hiring engineers for research and development, but the physical infrastructure, like the actual factories. But I digress. They want double digit pay raises. That's not happening in this economy. They want third, they want a restoration of cost of living adjustments. They might get that, that depending on the contract and the actual percentage amount, the GM, I say the big, so it's GM, Ford and Chrysler. They might acquiesce to that. If it's a small percentage, most businesses do have something similar to that where the wage does increase year over year. Four, oh geez, this is not happening. They want pension benefits for all employees, including new hires. Hell no. There's no, I, I can't fathom that there's no way they could afford this. The, these companies, that's not fathomable. That was one of the major reasons these companies went bankrupt in 09. I mean, pensions are basically gone. Back in the day, they were very popular and they were great, they're a great idea, don't get me wrong, but in this hyper-competitive industry, there's no way they're gonna have pensions for all employees, including new hires. I Again, I have a sample size in Texas in terms of the businesses, I own an IT company. When I'm interacting with businesses, 
I have anecdotal evidence about 400 businesses in Texas where I've had touch points and I've researched them. Actually, no, by this time, 800. I know one private sector business that has a pension plan. It's an old school distributor. One, no one has it in the private sector because it, again, it's not competitive. So you want pension benefits. Another audacious thing they want, reestablish retiree medical benefits. Terrible cost. Again, when you look at the pie graph of why the GM, so most of my background, just because I was a fan of GM in terms of products and their old leadership, I was an uh, admirer of many of their uh, capabilities. And they used to make some of the best sports cars on the planet, you know, affordable, stick shift, three pedals, as manual transmission as every sports car should be. Nonetheless, they've acquiesced to making boring vehicles mostly. But that's one of the major reasons they went bankrupt in 09. The pensions and the medical benefits. Medical, United States, it's usually very expensive. Many people attribute that to the ever interconnected relationships with the government and the medical industry. A lot of people will argue to the, that the price would be a lot cheaper if it was more competitive and it was more free market. Another topic for another time, perhaps. But they want to reestablish retiree medical benefits, which again, that's going to be hugely expensive. They also want, you know, so that's number five. Number six, they want the right to strike over plant closures. That's not happening. And at 65, they've noted that 65 plants have closed in the past two decades because you cost so much money, perhaps, as well as the U.S. government having anti-competitive rules and regulations in place. You can't go on to the days where you pay someone $65 an hour to put a tire in a car, which they were when they went bankrupt in 2000. Um, sorry, back in 2009. Again and again, some people in the comments last week, and I will further clarify that statistic is based on their healthcare benefits as well as their hourly, hourly wage. All that matters at the end of the day is that big number because that's the number that costs the shareholders, that's the number that costs the customers. To buy a GM vehicle on average, they did, again, the study was about uh, 36 months ago, a couple years back, it's about two grand more. That's how much you're paying for that unionized car. That's not competitive. The most reliable cars on the planet, they're made by companies that don't have unions. And I know, I know, there are many variables that go into that. Not only is it the labor or the quality of labor, in which some instances like Japanese culture you have Kaizen and Toyota, in which they always want to improve the product and their culture is a good example of uh, Toyota. They have an assembly line. If there's an issue with the Toyota, they stop the assembly line. They fix the, the issue there. GM and these other competitors, they see an issue. They just go, ah, keep going, keep on the assembly line. McDonald's it, bam, bam, bam. And maybe we'll fix it when it gets to the end. More often than not, but yeah, I can't help but notice the most reliable cars, Tesla. They're not unionized. In fact, they actually give their employees stock options. I think if you're truly invested in a company, I think these companies should do that. Granted, the union will always want more. If they weren't unionized, I would say there would be an incentive to give them stock options. But Tesla, they give their employees stock options so they're invested in the company. They want to work like hell. They don't want to just sit around and put a minimum effort because the reward system is based on how the company does Tesla, not based on how many years they sit in the same position. Now, look at Honda. They make some of the best cars on the planet. Honda Civic SI, awesome. Three pedals made of transmission as every car should have. Those cars consistently will last a quarter of a century as well as a million miles. Same with Toyota. All those cars are phenomenal. And again, this is increasing the cost of goods sold. And right now they're not as reliable. They're, so they wanna, they wanna reestablish their right to strike when 
again, it's not, and it's not just a union. There are many legal reasons why you move factories. You need, the U.S., I also blame, you know, Republicans, Democrats. The government does make it prohibitive to build many products in the United States. So that's another thing I want to do. We want to write to strike over plant closures, which again, that'll put them in the same issue of Radio Shack. Now, when Radio Shack first went bankrupt, they were saved by American General. But a contingency of them being saved, the new company said, you are not allowed to close stores. That's terrible because some of the stores were losing money. And in order to be profitable, you have to have the stores that are making you money. If you have a factory that's old and you're losing money year after year, you have to close it or sell it off. There's only so much you can do to increase profitability of some of the instances. So that's going to be problematic as well. Now, the seventh thing they want, which is, from a negotiation point, ridiculous. They want, quote, unquote, significant increases in retiree pay, unquote. Now, I say partially ridiculous for two things. One, you're already retired. Again, that pension is going to bankrupt these companies again. But two, that's not a quantifiable number. And I go, perhaps some of the ambiguities to help with negotiations. And again, they, they're going to argue that it's a negotiation. This is the top thing they want. They know they're not going to get it all. These, I, my three cents is you're at a pivotal moment in the automotive community. These companies, they're not doing great. Ford, they're probably the best in terms of they've never gone bankrupt officially, partially because they took out a big loan at a convenient time during 2009 or the 2008 you know, crash. But they're all trying to transition to new products that are not profitable. They will be eventually. Most, pro, most, um, most investments will eventually become profitable if you do it right. Look at Tesla, they lost money for years, but they're building out the infrastructure. And with the economies of scale, you can divide that cost over many units made. So right now, Ford is losing money on the EMOC, also known as the bastardized Mustang. This has nothing to do with the Mustang, but they named it a Mustang anyway. Marketing fail. Maybe D minus, give them a little credit. But these companies are losing money on these vehicles. But the union is just seeing them making billions on paper. That being said, they need the money for two reasons, I would argue, right now. One, reinvest in the company as well as their transformation. My three cents is it might bankrupt one of them just because, again, EV takes a long time to make profitable. I'm not saying it can't be done. Some companies have a successful track record of doing that. But you look at GM, most of, the, most of the profit GM makes is from SUVs, crossovers, trucks. Those are the things that are going to turn into EV. The money right now is coming from internal combustion engine trucks. They have, so GM's credit, they did announce about the $927 million investment into the V8. Perhaps the best thing GM's ever done is the V8, the internal combustion engine, eight cylinders pumping away because they know they're going to need those trucks to make them money. Same thing with Ford. Ford is making money from Ford Blue. Ford is divided into three companies. Ford Blue, which is the one you and I love, the Mustang with three pedals, great vehicle. The Ford F-150, the original one. That's the old company or the legacy Ford. Then you have Ford Commercial, which is the big trucks, the F-350, 450, 550, whatever they make these days. And it was all the commercial vans. That makes sense. Then you have the Ford E, which is their EV branch or subsidiary. That part of the company is bleeding money. So Ford Blue is making money, but that profit is being put back into the other company because they believe that, and I was going to say, due to government regulations, the market is moving that way. The consumer preferences be damned, but they're reinvesting all, this, all that money there. And again, this is a very competitive industry. Investing in just making one vehicle is a huge risk. You're talking billions of dollars because again, there are some parts sharing, which helps decrease the cost, but it's a huge gamble to come out with a new vehicle and their competitors don't have this slowing them down. Tesla isn't scared they're gonna have a strike tomorrow because their employees are invested in the company. They're shareholders in the stock. 
I would almost argue, and again, I don't know if this is possible, but in negotiation, perhaps anything is possible, but almost come to the table and say, hey, disband the union. We're going to have a direct relationship with you. We're not going to have a divorce lawyer, which is kind of the pejorative term I use for these union relationships where that one person's whole incentive structure is to have conflict because they can prove their job and their worth, but have a direct relationship. Say, hey, we're going to have a huge transformation. If you believe in what you're doing and your merit, we're going to give you stock options. We're going to incentivize you to work like hell to have our companies be successful. I think that's what they need to do right now because again, it's a hyper-competitive industry and just a couple wrong moves can cause bankruptcy. So let me know in the comments, do you think they're gonna get all of their wants? Do you think it'd be better to almost have a whole reapproach where you give them stock options or reinvest? But again, these can be huge cost. And there is this, there is always a silver lining if you squint hard enough in life, this will perhaps help with the I was gonna say, maybe it'll decrease on the employee turnover. Although that being said, if you're in a union, like once you get in, you usually stay in there for life. Like, I, it'll be interesting to see what Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, and Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, as well as the CEO of Chrysler, which again, they're they're also not, they're owned by Stellantis um, overseas. But it'll be interesting to see, but this is, it's a very precarious time. I, I can't help but think this is a contributing factor why Warren Buffett halved his investment in General Motors. He had about 40 million shares via his um, cup investment firm, Berkshire Hathaway. It went from 40 million shares, I believe, to 22 million shares of General Motors. And Warren Buffett is the best investor in history with the exception of Nancy Pelosi's husband who just happens to know better than the Oracle of Omaha. Although, yeah, totally coincidence that uh, his wife works in the government and controls the laws that dictate everything. I'm sure it's totally coincidence. They don't talk at all. But in all seriousness, that's a huge delta. Uh, that's a huge blow in confidence or decrease in confidence that Warren Buffett is halving his investment in your company when Warren Buffett has a astronomically success track in terms of picking these companies that, again, he looks for long-term tangible investments as well as uh, he also believes in some technologies warmed up. One of the biggest shareholders of Apple's actually. But I think people, are, when I asked on LinkedIn, I did a poll, what are the three reasons you think Warren Buffett pulled out or he decreased his stake in the company. And I asked, you know, the union contract coming up, the union costs, they asked the EV transformation. And actually a fair amount of people said the EV transformation was their main concern, followed by the union concern with the contract coming up. And those are two big things that are gonna shape these companies for quite some time. Again, if, if the cost of labor goes up, they're already losing money on these EV vehicles. If they keep increasing the price, again, over time, EVs go down in price, but they're usually twice as much as an internal combustion engine. Now, Elon Musk will brag that his, uh, what was it, $50,000 vehicle was the same as the average vehicle in the US, but that average vehicle price in the US also includes EVs from other companies. But if you're a family who needs something that's gonna last a quarter of a century, you're gonna buy an internal combustion engine because that's what's most reliable with the technology you have today. So the interesting to see, let me know in the comments, do you think this will make or break the big three? Well, this, I can't imagine, let me know, what do you think is the upside of the situation? If GM and the big three said, hey, we're gonna give you everything you want, what would that do to the companies? Would it make the product cheaper? It's not gonna make the product cheaper for the customer. I, I don't see the silver lining from that perspective. And again, these companies are struggling. GM, they laid off a bunch, they gave voluntary payouts to a lot of corporate executives and a lot of corporate, pretty much if you worked at the headquarters, they're trying to buy you out of your, buy you out of your contract or your salary position because they're trying to decrease costs to compete with the Teslas of the world. That's a huge feat. And in the time they're trying to decrease every cost, this may very well be one of their largest costs, one of the largest costs that's gonna hit their books. 
let me in the comments, do you think they're going to agree to all these? Are they going to just agree to strike? What will the future hold for the big three in the UAW? In 2023, is the United Auto Workers, are, are, they, are they still worth it? Are they going to help these companies succeed or will they be the detriment to their existence? Time shall tell. Let me know in the comments. I'd love to hear, if you're a UAW member, I'd love to hear your feedback. In terms of my family and um, coming from the Midwest and up North, I've had some folks throughout the set years who have worked in management other positions at GM. So I'd love to hear what you have to say in terms of your experiences, what your thoughts are, and I'll share my later video, your thoughts and your input are most appreciated. Now, going on to the business blunder of the day, you have Dollar Tree locking up merch as the retail theft increases exponentially. If only there's some way to stop them. Well, you know, maybe hiring district attorneys that actually prosecute crime or, you know, having guards. Well, no, that's, that's, that was a crazy idea. It's going to have that. Let's just, let's, let's just let theft keep increasing exponentially. Now, this is coming from the Dollar Tree's CEO, Richard Drelling. And they said on a call to analysts last Thursday that the company is introducing new measures in the second half of the year to combat shrink, which is the industry term for the loss of inventory due to not just employee theft, but also individual theft for consumers. Well, I guess they're not really customers are not paying for anything. More like deplorably, morally vacuous people. Side note, I've yet to see someone steal a loaf of bread in the past 10 years on when you see all these looting. But, and also organized crime. Those three are the most common ways theft or shrinkage is affecting these retail businesses. Now, he said, quote, we are taking a very defensive approach to shrink. Now, Dollar Tree actually owns Family Dollar as well as Dollar General? No way. Have they grown that much? That would almost be a monopoly of the, of the dollar stores. Who does Dollar Tree own? And I want to double fact check this because I, I apologize. I m believe I may have a typo. Dollar Tree. Because I know we had some consolidation. I thought Dollar General was still independent. You have the headquarters, industry, type, formerly Dollar Tree. Okay, I do. I was correct in my assertion or in my suspicion. So Dollar Tree owns Family Dollar. Dollar General is still independent. But it's a very small industry and it is just exponentially seemingly to come together. And it looks like the company's pro gross uh, profit margins fell from 32.7% in the second quarter of 2022 to 29.8% in the second quarter of 2023, in which Dollar General, or sorry, Dollar Tree CFO Jeffrey Davis blamed primarily inventory losses and shrinkage for that. Now, in terms of this being a big issue, the National Retail Feder Federation, they blame shrink for losses to be attributed to $94.5 billion in 2021, up from the previous year of $90.8 billion. As an ex astonishing amount of theft in the United States. Can't help but think of Saudi Arabia and other countries where if you steal, they just chop off your hand. And subsequently, I would say the problem is permanently solved. $94.5 billion. I know Target, they're struggling. Their stock has been dropping precipitously, not just because of the boycott, but they are estimating they're going to lose $400 million to theft this year. As a, If you're a shareholder, you should be pissed. I can't help but think a good, what's a good way to maybe solve this? People are stealing left and right. You know what we have a lot of in the United States? Veterans. Hire a veteran, put them outside with an M16 or more accurately perhaps, and well, that'd be extra paperwork if you were to get that NFA item, unless you or the government, but nevertheless, give them a rifle, give them a pistol, say, hey, guard this store. If you see that, we're gonna prosecute it to the fullest extent of the law. We're gonna vote for district attorneys to actually prosecute crime, not let them go. 
that's it, there's many reasons and the insurance industry there's many contributing factors that need to be taken into account for this situation with this theft we need to fix it now one of the reasons and i i remember this being so morally vacuous as a child seeing it one of my first jobs was being a, a bag boy and during the orientation also a stance an issue where i was forced to join a union and of course i pay my dues and of course it's a summer job so they got the benefit and i let, went back to school but in that instance they told you in the training if you see someone like not not just you suspect if you see someone take something off the shelf and put it in their pocket do not stop them because the insurance company and the policy our store has has determined that it's more risk that you can get hurt and then you'll sue us which again i also blame lawyers we need to come together i know it's also a cultural issue but come together and fix this on all these fronts insurance companies have to come together and to realize there's a bigger cost to this not just fiscally because you're reinforcing negative behavior there's gonna be more theft if you don't stop it but also culturally the culture is de decaying because of this you're telling people it's okay to steal which since the dawn of time has not been appropriate so i can't help but think we could it's gonna take a lot of, there's a lot of levers that need to be pulled in order to fix this situation this cultural demise but let me know in the comments do you think businesses are going to finally start waking up to the fact that they're going to reach a breaking point where they're going to lose money and they will no longer be in business eventually if they don't solve these issues will people vote differently will people write to, will people actually reach out to these insurance companies these politicians the local communities and come together to say hey enough is enough we need to stop this and come together and say this is not acceptable you will not get away with this in our town the store will not accept it our policies have changed we will not prosecute you to the full extent of law. The district attorney will sentence you appropriately. Will that happen? I, I praise. I, I really hope so. But I would say, we'll see. Now, still, the Dollar General locking up merch. And their inventory is shrinking less and less. They are, for now, the business blunder of the day. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to tune in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. Trying to get to 3,000 subscribers by the end of August. Greatly appreciate your assistance. Also, your comments help the channel grow and develop as well as it helps me slow down my speech and make the show better and better as that was a previous critique which I've taken to heart and something I've worked on more and more. Also, don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone, everyone, just stay safe, fight the good fight.